This is an ABC podcast. It was a bit difficult at the beginning because I went from someone telling me what to do to now I had to tell other people, guide other people in terms of what they need to do. A good boss looks like a tough boss. So most days there's no good boss happening. <laughs> when we actually started, I had no idea like what I was going to be, what was to be expected. I had to make sure that I played this role where I knew what I was doing, even if I had no idea what I was doing. Whether you're just starting your own business or you're the CEO of a huge company, the challenges of being a female boss are the same. Not being taken seriously, not getting the respect you deserve, and of course, having to balance your career aspirations with obligations at home. Relatively few women in the Pacific have high-profile leadership roles. Research from Pacific Women in Politics shows that just over 8% of national members of parliament are women. But we know that so many women run the show in less public ways, especially in the informal sector, such as market stallholders. So I get excited when I talk to women who begin with an idea or a means to an end and turn it into a formal, even global business. I'm Hilda Wayne. Sisters, let's talk about being a boss. So what's it like to be the head of a large organization? As a woman from Papua New Guinea, I know the sexism and family obligations can be huge hurdles. But for CEO Susil Nelson Kongoy, a family was a driving factor in preparing her for a big career. I am the oldest child in the family, and I have 11 siblings, including myself. Um, so when I was growing up, I, I sort of, I worked. So I actually worked to fund my younger siblings to go to school, and it's not uncommon in many Papua New Guinean big families where the older child tends to work. Now, Susil is the head of the Institute of Banking and Business Management in Papua New Guinea. But it was a long journey to the top beginning as a child in Yonguru, then Port Moresby, then New Zealand. She went to a Western boarding school and studied accounting at an Australian university. So many opportunities, right? But her overseas education led to some setbacks when she wanted to come back to Papua New Guinea to work. At that time, there was some atmosphere around, you know, kids who were educated overseas and coming back and trying to assimilate back into the system. I actually knew that there wasn't opportunities available, so I actually wrote ahead and asked if I could do volunteer work, and that's how I came back and got into the formal education as I started off doing volunteer work with one of the big four firms, um, PricewaterhouseCoopers. And then when I did that, they saw that I was actually really good at what I did, so they decided to pay me a a stipend. That stipend was, wait for it, 250 kina a fortnight. But, you know, when you're on a student, you know, that's really big bucks. So back then, and, yeah, you know, the value yeah. of the kina was much better than science. Her career took her to some unexpected places, including the energy giant ExxonMobil. Actually, I never dreamed that I would work in oil and gas because I thought, you know, it's only for engineers and people who have technical skills for that industry. But when I got in there, I realized that the brand and reputation of the company is not dependent on 
the engineers and that. It's dependent on all the support services around it from IT to HR to public and government affairs, et cetera. That's what puts that company on the map. So when I got asked to go and head up the national content um, portfolio, it really interested me because not only was I localizing the position because I was creating career pathways for other Papua New Guineans to move into it, but it was around, you know, um, developing workforce to get more Papua New Guineans into the workforce and to move into senior leadership roles. Making her way up the ladder as both a woman and a Papua New Guinean, Cecile sometimes had to take stock of how unusual that was. When I went into Exxon and they put me in a glass office, I thought that was normal. And then I had, you know, one of my um, cousins worked in Exxon as well, and he came over to me and he said to me, do you realize that you're the only Papua New Guinean sitting in one of these offices? And I was like, oh, no, not really. I thought it was more like, you know, that I'm qualified to sit in this office. <laughs> it was interesting. And then I realized, okay, then I'm the most senior Papua New Guinean that was in that position if I was sitting like a door away from the CEO. It took a bit of to get my head around that, but to me, it's just about performing your role, doing the best that you can at what you're, you've been given. Being a black woman in a white man's world, people sometimes make assumptions about her role or underestimate her. When you get on a plane and somebody asks you, are you the secretary? Because you're sitting in business class and you're the youngest member. And oh my gosh, I, 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 I lose time. So the amount of times that I was, you know, blessed to be in that position, to be able to travel business class and get that question, are you the secretary or, you know, people treating you less because they think you'll wait for it, someone's wife that you're sitting next to that you have no idea who they are. Yes. <laughs> oh, my gosh. How does it feel when you have to kind of deal with such situations or to say that to them? It's really interesting because I always think, you know, like uh, I try to give people the benefit of the doubt. So it's like, okay, they don't know who I am. And it's really a lesson in like humility, <laughs> humbling yourself. I mean, you know, it's not a, and, and it's something that I've kept, like, you know, people, it's, even though you progress upwards, it's really like who you are as a person. When you die, you're not going to take that title with you. So it's about your interaction with people. So I really try to be, you know, understanding and my response to people like that and think that that's their sort of worldview and not mine. Absolutely. And you're now the CEO of PNG's Institute of uh, Banking and Business Management. What's that job like? Oh, so I really enjoy the job that I've you know, I come into and it was an interesting um, journey to get to this stage. It's very hard once you're like a Papua New Guinean, well, a Papua New Guinean full stop to get, especially if it's a multinational to scale upwards. Um, you feel like you, well, I certainly felt I, I, I came to a ceiling that I couldn't go any further. So at the time, I knew within me that I had to go somewhere. How do you straddle customary life with the Western life, I mean, you come from an incredible background of your mother and father as well. How do you juggle this and, you know, try to find a balance? Yeah, I mean, it's, I've had this conversation with other up and coming, other Papua New Guineans rising across um, certain areas and industries as well. And it's, 
It's something that we all face. And, you know, it's really the question about, you know, Papua New Guinea is becoming more modern and global, and yet we still have our ties because that's our identity, who we are. And for me personally, I think it's because, um, you know, you hear those stories every day. We sit down and my dad would tell us, you know, this is who you are. This is what you have to do. So you grow up with those obligations. You become assimilated to it. Like you've got one foot in the modern world, very much still in your traditional, you know, tied to the village. You're from the village, even though I was born here in Port Moresby. If people ask me where I'm from, I'm from Sibic. I'm from Wewak because we go there every Christmas. That's where I feel my sense of identity is. And it's the same for other, you know, people who were born here that are from other provinces. They Everybody travels home for Christmas, right? The thing is, how do you pass those cultural norms, that obligations that you find that you hold dear to the next generation so that it doesn't get lost in the Western world, <laughs> because that's what makes us unique. And the other flip side to it is when I went through this situation, it's also about educating the colleagues that we work with, and especially like I worked in a multinational, educating them about why that culture or custom is important to us, because sometimes we have to dispel the myths about all, oh, you know, because they tend to take away only one aspect of it, and that's like, the compensation or the money, but no, yes, that's the end game. And but there's a whole lot of process involved in that, and it's for the good of the community. It's the way you see it and the way you message it. So, I think it's a balancing act that continues to be done today by a whole lot of us that will have our foot in both worlds. And what I always say to people I come across is that our beliefs and that that are uniquely Papua New Guinea and are good for us. And when we develop new systems and that, we have to look at what is our current context? You know, how can it be beneficial for us? And I'll give you an example. Something that I'm working on is salary sacrifices, right? And it's for housing, education, air travel. But why couldn't we broaden it up to include house price, for example, right? For your immediate family, because you can salary sacrifice that when the time comes and it's needed. You don't have to go to the banks or financial institutions and get even blackmailed even more. It can just come from your you know, package. So how do you get that into that tax system, IRC, so they recognize it? And uh, one of the interesting things I found is that if it's a company policy, if you yourself, like now that I'm in a position where I can make that happen for my staff, it can be salary sacrificed and it becomes a category. So that's what I mean about we need to get women educated at the highest levels because that pushes them into leadership positions that can affect change. And then for those that go into those positions to think about, you know, how can they make it better? Yeah. So, and that's about, you know, managing the two, getting um, traditional existing norms and how do we corporatize it so that it makes it easier for us to have a foot in both worlds. What an amazing and thoughtful leader. That's Susil Nelson Kongoi, the CEO of the Institute of Banking and Business Management in Papua New Guinea. This is Sisters Let's Talk with Hilda Wayne. 
Zima Anton Nenaka has wanted to run her own business for as long as she can remember. I wrote out the business plan when I was in um, year 11. We had a we had to write a business plan on what we wanted to see ourselves doing in the next 10 years. And you know the saying about girls who need women in high-profile roles to look up to? If she can't see it, she can't be it. Fortunately, that didn't apply to Zima because her dad was always her mentor. Actually, from the, the point where my dad actually decided to take on entrepreneurship, I was there and like I've seen him going through every step of the way, every challenge is in space. You know, as a family, he, he would come back and he would talk to us about you know, how this is done, how that is done. And especially being his children, he'd want us to grow up having that entrepreneurial mindset. Of course, he knew it was like one of my passions because I've always wanted to be a, a successful businesswoman in Papua New Guinea. Zima runs Zedzil Ripple, an online business that helps people and companies buy and sell their products. It's been running for 12 months and it's been a difficult but satisfying ride. Being a young person in this industry, you need to prove to everyone that you are capable of whatever you're putting out there in the market because not everyone's going to see you as competition in in terms of especially if you're young and you're inexperienced they will have a lot to say and they will always look down on you so every day you need to prove them that no I can do it so if you can do it I can do it even if I'm younger I can build my own experience I don't need to you know wait for someone to give me that experience but more so give myself the opportunity to grow and gain experience from actually doing things and um, learning. What were the main challenges you faced as a young woman starting a business? When we actually started, I had no idea like what I was going to be, what was to be expected um, going in because I, I did not have the experience. I had to make sure that I put out this, played this role where I knew what I was doing, even if I had no idea what I was doing. But through that, having confidence, I think confidence was key for me because I tried to make sure that I kept kept my confidence there because when I had the confidence, they even if I did not do things the way that they wanted me to do, with the confidence, they actually, I gained a lot of their trust as well with them proving to them every day that, oh, yeah, I can do this. Sounds like uh, you, you don't easily back down when you are given a challenge. Is, is that very important to you that you prove yourself? Yes, it's it's very important to me because I'm a person that, I just do a lot of things at the same time. Like I never see anything as a challenge. Even if at first, like a lot of people actually with starting out, they're like, oh, you know, you're very young. Like, are you sure you can handle this? I had a lot of people I, I went to to propose the idea. Like I have this idea, like, you know, I needed people to assist me, but everyone sort of thought like, maybe give it some time. I don't think it's the right time to do it. Like you're still very young, but me, myself, I knew that I could and I wanted to. So I think that drive was the main reason why I'm here today because I never stop. Every day I, I'm always ready to to face anything that comes my way. That's Zima Anton Nenaka who runs Zedzil Ripple in Papua New Guinea. Zima is ready to face the challenges of being a boss. But what is it like to employ and manage people as your business grows? Annette Seta is the founder of Papua New Guinea fashion label, Lover Girl and Marco Gifts, which she describes as a hobby that she turned into a business. And it's a success. 
last night we won the PNG SME Awards for um, SME of the Year. We spoke of you know our struggles and challenges, but also the the fact that we kept going, you know, from kitchen table, one person making and selling things to three to five to seven to ten, and eventually, like fast forward eight or nine years later, and we have sixty seven families that depended on this business that worked on this business. What have been the main challenges of being your own boss? Ah, uh, discipline. You know, sometimes you, I wake up and I'm like, there is no way I'm going to the office today, <laughs> you know. And then other times you're like, no, I got to go, you know. These people depend on me. I got to see this report. I got to talk to these people. Um, so getting into a routine and being disciplined about it is like my biggest challenge. And I'm still working on it. Um, I have a list of mentors that I tend to, that I use now and then to help guide me. Um, But yeah, I think self-discipline is a huge thing. I I haven't figured it all out, but, you know, some days are slow and slack and I'm lazy and other days I'm more pumped and giving 120% and other times I'm giving 80%. um, But I'm noticing those. I'm very aware of those, you know, lazy days. Um, So I try to do other things like, you know, if it's going to be lazy and I don't want to do admin or accounts or anything like that, maybe I schedule, you know, creative type work where I'm more relaxed, where I'm more, I enjoy that sort of thing. Um, So, yeah, I think getting to know where my weaknesses are and and finding ways to try and help that and, and keeping me, you know, in discipline and continue to do what we do. Because you miss three or four days, you know, you're being lazy. And when you try to get back, it's like things have moved, mm. worked, have file, uh, piled up. <laughs> Great advice, Annette. What does being a good boss look like? Uh, a good boss looks like a tough boss. So most days there's no good boss happening. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think, again, you discipline yourself and have a lot of boundaries over that. I'm big on family. I would, you know, I like having lunches and, you know, bonkai and a little feast or picnic or whatever it is with my staff. But also you kind of want them to be disciplined enough to to work and not let friendship get in the way. So I think there's a fine line between, you know, being a boss and being a friend at work. And especially when you not only the boss, but you own the business. Um, So finding those lines and I guess walking those fine lines is the challenge that I try to manage. You know, sometimes I'm too friendly. And so people think that, okay, she's my friend. She's not going to get on me when I slack off. And then it frustrates me when people think that they can, you know, they can get things out because of the friend, Mm. you know, they can get things done their way or they could miss work or they could get up to, you know, no good, not all stuff, but there are certain types that you feel that, oh, I really need to, you know, manage that fine line between being a friend and being a boss. That is like a constant, constant struggle for me, but I'm learning how to manage those um, so I think there is no good boss most days. <laughs> and that's why you uh, succeed because of that. that. Like you need to put your foot down sometimes. <laughs> 
You need to. And sometimes you're like the evil boss and the worst boss in the world. And other times you're like willing to listen and, you know, willing to help. And other days it's so frustrating when you're repeating the same old things and people don't get it. Annette, how much more are you seeing women in PNG taking control and becoming entrepreneurs? Ah, a lot more than when we started. You know, the lawyers quitting their job to start baking cakes, you know, running a, a bakery at home, even if they started from home. Corporate women getting into, like, starting up their own consulting firms. I've seen women who have, you know, left their jobs to do full-time sewing and selling. Um, so I think a lot more women in Papua New Guinea are getting out to doing their own thing. Many may hold on a full-time job yet, but are still, you know, getting into a side business where they're able to also supplement uh, their income or add on, you know, an extra income to, to the household. Now, when you see these uh, women, you know, rise up and do their own thing, uh, how do you feel mm-hmm. uh, seeing this happen in PNG, especially for women? I think it's exciting, you know. I think I, I try as much as possible to compliment these women. It's like power, Mary, you know, go for it. We can't just sit and expect, you know, only one wage to come in. But also there are women who have made the decision to just quit and then start up their own business. Like for me, when I started, it was a decision where I had to make and I wasn't ready, but I pushed myself out there. But these days I try to tell women that you make sure that you're set, you know, whether the husband is supporting, has a better job that could support you because, you know, you could go for up to three years not making money from a new startup. And that's speaking from an experience where I went through myself, but I wasn't ready to quit my job and I just quit it. You know, if I go back and do it, I would probably make sure that I have enough savings, that I have a side business that's already making profit before I quit. But I quit and then put everything in it and hope to God that it doesn't fail because then I'll have to go back to find a real job. You know what I mean? Mm. So always when I get a chance to talk to women, it's like if you're in a better job, and it's supporting you and your family right now, make sure that this is able to continue while you start something. Um, But if you feel strongly that you need to get out and focus the 100% on your business, then do that. But, you know, know that you won't make profit in the first year. There is no way you're going home with some money because it's going to take you at least three years before you can see a return on all your investment on anything you know, small that I that you get into. Because I see for myself, it wasn't until the third or fourth year that we were making money. You know, the first three years, it was like just money going out, you know, just having to live on noodles or just having to live on one fortnight from, you know, the husband and wait for things to happen. Apart from seeing your, you know, vision, your work, what do you love most about what you do? I think the main part is seeing other people happy and proud to wear products. You know, when you have people come up and say, oh, I have this event and I really need to wear, you know, your stuff. That's Anat Sete, who runs Lover Girl and Maku Gifts in Papua New Guinea. Finally, a woman who's seedling of an idea has created an industry in Papua New Guinea. I came across 
the garlic nuts as a potential business, largely by accident, really. Garlic nuts grow everywhere, and we used to eat them, but I never thought of them as commercial nuts until one day when we were thinking through how you know, we could survive. It was really a more or less a survival instinct that forced me to look around my environment to see what was there already that I could capture and potentially make something out of it. You met Galib Nut Grower Dorothy Luana earlier this year on Sisters Let's Talk when I spoke to her about women in agriculture. She told us all about the enterprise then, but I want to know what it's like going from working in the corporate sector to now running her own intensive business. Oh, I wish that I had started this earlier on, to be quite honest. I wish I was probably in my 30s when I started because it's totally different. It was a bit difficult at the beginning because I went from someone telling me what to do to now I had to tell other people or guide, I say guide other people in terms of what they need to do. and. People are very sensitive, and I'm a sensitive person, so I've had to work out how to work with my team, how to build my own team. Uh, I use a lot of the um, experiences, the tools, and the training that I acquired over the years to build my team in my little family business. What have been the main challenges you faced uh, as a boss and a woman, as a woman? First one is... People just not responding, uh, especially when they're new and they don't really know me enough. And uh, I find that mainly with the males, unfortunately, because I appear to be compassionate. Sometimes they do take advantage of that and they think that, oh, she's a pushover. But as soon as I see that these things are happening, like not turning up to work, etc. I put my foot down. That I think is uh, something that's very difficult in the PNG working environment. A uh, lot of uh, staff generally, if they want to take time off uh, or they have an excuse to get sick, etc., they don't realize that it impacts on your business because every day we have to work, every day we have to process, every day we have to go out and buy and if one person is not there, uh, I have to reorganize the, the teams going out again. And so I think of everything, that's the main challenge. We had other challenges, but I think absenteeism is the biggest challenge that uh, I face. And uh, just, I would say maybe because I've got a lot of energy despite my age, I put in 110% and I've come to accept that not everybody is going to be like me. How much more comfortable are you now with giving instructions and being direct? Like, as you said, in PNG, we have this kind of, you know, we don't want to, you know, upset somebody. How how, how comfortable are you now giving instructions to you, people who work with you? I'm more directive now, now that I've given out duty statements. And we have uh, introduced weekly meetings and weekly updates. So, it's become more routine now. I can deal with it a lot more now. I think the other big <laughs> potential issue is uh, bringing in family members or extended relatives. I've learned moving forward that 
they are low priority as far as uh, employment. You want to employ your relatives so that everyone ends a living, but if their attitude affects the running of a business, it's best to employ the best person, and that best person may not necessarily be your relative. That's social entrepreneur and Gallup nut grower Dorothy Luana from East New Britain in Papua New Guinea. Thanks to all my guests today, Dorothy Anatsete, Zima Anton Nenaka, and Susil Nelson Kongoy. I hope they've given you some inspiration to take a leap in your own career or in your life. Next time on Sisters Let's Talk, we all know the impact that climate change is having on our lives in the Pacific. What happens when it gets so bad that we have to leave home? Yeah, most of the people from Kiribati moved to New Zealand and most of the rising sea. I don't want my company to sink. That's next time on Sisters Let's Talk. Sisters Let's Talk is an ABC Radio Australia production presented by me, Hilda Wayne. Our producer is Alice Matthews, supervising producer is Kim Lester, and Falianga Fulu, Inga Stunsna, is our executive producer. Sisters Let's Talk is created on Wuradjuri, Nanowal, Nambri, Yagara, Turrbal, and Darunbal country. And we pay our respects to elders past and present. Emtasol na bungi next time.